0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Welcome to episode 84 of the GDPR Weekly Show. We make no excuse again this week for, during the bulk of this episode, over to items related to GDPR and the 12ID-19 coronavirus pandemic. But we do have other news for you too. We would also add, before we start, that if you have questions about the coronavirus epidemic and how it affects GDPR or how GDPR affects your home working then do always feel free to send us an email to corona at insurity.co.uk that's the dot ycouk but we would ask before you do that that you listen back to episodes 82 and 83 of the GDPR weekly show as they do have a quite large frequently asked questions section in both episodes and so you may well find that your question is already answered there. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show we have a look at how GDPR affects local support groups which are setting up to help the vulnerable during the coronavirus lockdown in the UK. We have a look at UK government surveillance tracking of coronavirus individuals via their mobile phones and we've borne it out to look to see what other European countries are doing in the same field too. We have a look at your data and what you can reasonably expect the government and your employers to request from you as a result of the coronavirus. We have more guidance on home working and also some information about coronavirus phishing attacks. We then look at some security concerns with the popular video conferencing solution Zoom. And then moving away from coronavirus, we have an update on the Virgin Media data breach, which we previously reported to you in the GDPR Weekly Show, and news of the launch of a legal class action against Virgin Media to seek compensation for all those affected by the data breach. We then have news of a data breach at Watford Community Housing, and we then have news of an article which appeared in the Daily Telegraph about. Data breaches of BBC databases. And finally, for this week, we have news about a data breach at the Irish Teaching Council in the Republic of Ireland. So, hopefully, a really useful mix of articles for you this week. We hope you find it useful and entertaining. And as always, if you have any feedback for us, please either send that to corona at or podcast at We do read every single piece of feedback that you send, but we don't have time to reply to each one individually. But we do look to use your feedback to improve future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, so please do keep the feedback coming. It's always good to hear from you.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: As the lockdown situation takes hold here in the UK, and as... The whole COVID 19 virus episode pandemic, call it what you will, gets more serious and more closer to home. Then it's great to see so many church groups, neighbourhood and residence associations setting themselves up to help protect the more vulnerable members of our society at this time. And this last week we received quite a number of inquiries from groups such as these. Asking about GDPR and how it affects the information they're gathering and what they need to do and so on. Well, I think the first thing to say is don't overstress about it. Everyone recognizes that we are living in unprecedented times and unprecedented times sometimes call for unprecedented actions. And so, if you're not quite on the ball with GDPR, don't think the ICO is going to come and whack you with a great big stick or a great big fine, come to that because that's simply not going to happen. That doesn't mean you can just ignore it, but what I do mean is don't, you know, don't let it stop you doing what you're trying to do. So the important things really are, firstly, with the people you're dealing with and you're collecting information from, keep it clear. Make sure that you're clear, open and honest with people about what you're doing with their information. Tell them why you need it, what you're going to do with it, and who you're going to share it with. Now ideally, you have that written down in a document called privacy notice um, or privacy policy, which you can then share with people. But don't worry too much if you don't have that. But if you get a chance, do try and put one together. And if you'd like a sample, please just email us at corona at uk. That's C-O-R-O-N-A and insurity is E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y. So corona at insurity.co.uk. You'd like a sample privacy policy, and, and we would gladly send you one. No charge just for your information, and just so you can use it for this instance with things related to coronavirus. So, keep it clear. And as I said, if you can have a privacy policy, it's great if you've got one, try and have one, but it's not the end of the world if you don't. So, don't fret over it. And remember, you don't need to keep sharing this information in the emergency, you don't need to work with partners and sharing information with them can make a real difference to public safety. In fact, it can be more harmful not to share data than to share it. For example, you might need to tell your local council about elderly residents who are housebound due to self-isolation and need support. If you can, think ahead. What kind of information are you likely to need to share? What do you need to do to make sure that happens securely? And remember, data protection law does not prevent you sharing personal information where it's appropriate to do so. And in these circumstances that we find ourselves in at the moment, this is covered under the lawful basis of vital interest. And so don't worry too much about who you're sharing with. But obviously, don't go sharing information with any Joe Soap down the road who's not connected with your group at all. But just, you know, just be sensible who you share information with. In regards to what information you capture, less is more. Try and capture the minimum amount of information that you need to be able to um, provide the service you want to provide to the individual. So you need to know their name, you need to know their address, you probably need to know their telephone number, maybe their email address. You don't need to know their GP's name. You don't need to know their next of kin. That's extra information that really it's a bit hard to justify you needing in the role that most voluntary groups are providing. So... Don't ask for more information than you need, but do ask for information that you do need. For example, you know, have they got a dog? Is the dog aggressive? Is the dog put away? Do they have a hearing problem? So you need to knock loudly so that they know that you've left their food outside. You know, all these sort of things. Just think about things like that. But but just think with every single piece of information that you gather, why do I need it? Do I really need it? And if the answer to that is no, then don't collect that piece of information. Because the crucial thing to bear in mind is, would the person who you've got the information on expect you to know that information and expect you to use that information? Have, you given, have they given you consent to use their information? And bear in mind here, we're not necessarily talking about direct consent. It can be implied consent under, as I say, under the terms of vital interests. And is the person's health or safety at risk if I don't use that information? So The things you need to be thinking about. If you're holding the information electronically, then make sure you keep it secure. Make sure you back up your PC or your Mac or whatever you're using to store the information on. It's not a bad idea to store the information either on your iPhone or your iPad if you have one, because that automatically encrypts the information. But do keep it secure, keep it to a minimum, and keep a record of what you've done. So keep a record of how many records you have, um, what you've done with them, who you've shared them with, etc. Just in case anything happens in the future. It's unlikely anything will, but, you know, let's play safe. And once this is all over, and at some point in the future, and I wish I could tell you when, but I really got no more idea than anyone else. But at some point in the future, all this will be over, and life will return to normal, or more probably a new normal. But, you know, life will get back on track. And when it does, then you really should destroy all this data that you've held because you've got no justifiable reason to hold it then. Once all the shops are open again, once all the social services are running as they should, once everybody's getting back to normal and can pop to the shops and get what they want, can pop to the surgery and pick up their prescription, can pop to the chemist and pick up the prescription, then really you don't need to hold that information anymore. And so at that point you should make sure that you've securely deleted all of it. So I hope that helps. I hope that gives you some guidelines to work along. If you've got any queries about it, please do just drop us an email to corona at and one of our team asbestos will do our best to help you.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Button.
1: On Friday this week, the UK government was granted permission to use personal data from citizens' mobile phones in an attempt to tackle the spread of coronavirus. The Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, is allowing the authorities to use private information to track and monitor the public's behaviour. It comes after it was revealed last week that the government was interested in using mobile phones to see if people were observing the social distancing guidelines that the government has now put in place. This decision is not without concerns and privacy advocates have said that the move is extremely concerning and have called for clear time limits on the extended powers to stop the government using this information to continuously spy on individuals. Previously, it had been reported that the government was interested in using the data to create movement maps of individuals and groups with a 12 to 24 hour delay. It is thought that this would allow law enforcement to find hotspots of people flouting the lockdown and discover how thoroughly the public is adhering to the new guidelines. Some campaigners are concerned that the move could be a slippery slope and see restrictions on individuals' expectation of privacy. Ray Walsh, digital privacy expert at ProPrivacy, said revelations that the UK's ICO has approved the use of UK phone data in the fight against coronavirus are extremely concerning with regards to personal privacy. The newly approved rules give the government permission not only to use aggregated data to ascertain hotspots where people are congregating and potentially spreading covid 19, but also to use personal device level data that could reveal their exact location. These kinds of provisions are far-reaching surveillance expansions that individual users ought to be informed about before and not after their personal data is collected. These surveillance measures are going to change the way we live forever and the specific time limits are set to ensure the government cannot keep spying on people once the pandemic is over. For the ICO, a spokesperson said the safety and security of the public remains our primary concern. The ICO and our colleagues in the public sector have this at the forefront of our minds at this time, and we are here to help. The extent to which the government will use the personal data remains unknown, but other countries have taken similar measures to varying degrees. China, South Korea, Hong Kong and Israel have implemented stringent surveillance measures including making infected patients download a smartphone app to reveal their movement and contacts. Other variations of tracking apps to enforce quarantine and self-isolation have been rolled out in Spain, Romania, Slovakia and Poland with reports that the UK is developing a similar app. Telecom data gives a good indication of where someone is or how groups move. This said, the radio masks used for mobile telephones have a limited range and in cities this can often be only a few hundred metres. But by using this information, the government could potentially keep an eye on whether people really stay near their house. In addition to telecom networks, app developers also make use of location data. This is much more accurate than data coming solely from the cell phone towers. That's because they leverage multiple data sources. Most apps supplement the phone's GPS data with external sources such as cell phone towers and nearby Wi-Fi networks. This way, your phone knows whether you're at home. Moreover, it knows if you're connected to a trusted wireless network then they can be fairly sure you're at work or your home address. And phones also know where they are based on nearby Bluetooth devices. Now in Europe, strict locations apply to the processing of house data and location data. Organisations can process house data under the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, without consent of data subjects, but with a but only if it's necessary for reasons of public interest in the field of public health and when required by specific laws and regulations. In addition to GDPR, the ePrivacy Directive applies to use the location data of mobile phones, In the context of the coronavirus outbreak, the European Data Protection Board, which is the overseeing body for GDPR right across Europe, and at the moment that includes the UK because we're in this transition period even after Brexit, the European Data Protection Board has recently emphasised the need to anonymise location data or obtain prior authorisation, as a result of which EU member states, governments and market parties are prone to look for privacy-friendly alternatives. Good examples of this are apps that work on the basis of permission, or apps that delete location data immediately after the COVID-19 pandemic has come to an end. Now, the European Commission has also got involved in this, and on March 23rd, the European Commission urged some of Europe's telecom giants, including Deutsche Telekom and Orange, to share anonymised and aggregated mobile phone data across the region. This should help predict the spread of the virus. The draft plans would allow the Commission to manage how the data was used, and give EU officials control over so-called metadata on hundreds of millions of people's mobile phones. This would be a significant step for Brussels as it would make the EU executive liable for any hefty fines if at some point in the future the digital information was hacked or misused. The European Commissioner explained that we will select one big operator by country. We want to be very fast and follow this on a daily basis. The Commission insisted the operation would respect GDPR and e-privacy legislation. The European Data Protection Supervisor would also be involved, the EU executive said. So how is this rolling out in different countries? Well, in Italy, Italy was the first EU member state where the COVID-19 epidemic was triggered an ongoing series of restrictions on travel and individual mobility. In Italy, the ISI Foundation and consumer insights company Quebec collaborated to make a first quantitative assessment of the impact of these interventions they went by mobility flows individual mobility and contact patterns their conclusions were based on the analysis of smartphone apps and location data collection software the data came from Quebec's data for good program they measured changes in traffic fluxes between italian provinces in the average distance travelled by users and in the spatial proximity of users. The researchers state that their results can be helpful to modellers and policy makers of other EU member states and worldwide. This is especially true now that travel and social restrictions are becoming more common on a global scale. In Italy, the analysis is updated daily as new data becomes available. In the Lombardy region, which is the worst affected region in Italy, they've been using a cell-to-cell displacement analysis system for cell phones. This is done to understand how many inhabitants move around its territory. It does so thanks to the tra- telephone companies that have made available the traffic data of the repeaters and the index of signals that move from one cell to another. This technique will not allow you to track single mobile phones, but it does do the overall pattern of where people are moving and where people are together. And so the span, the span of the space, by using this cell technique, is around every three to 500 square metres. So who goes out in the garden is not, as well as those who buy bread under the house. Um, so, you know, if you stay in your own garden, you're not going to move out of the cell, even though you're moving around. So it's not 100% accurate on where people are, but obviously it picks up the bigger picture of where people are merging and congregating. In Austria... They are working on the analysis of cellular data that contain COPID 19. The leading network in Austria, A1, passes on anonymized data to the government. Here too we are dealing with combined data records which according to A1 comprise at least 20 people. The 9 million inhabitants in the EU Member State of Austria should only leave houses and apartments for good reason, for example for work or for urgent errands such as the purchase of food. Police control should ensure there are not many people in public places. When comparing current movement data with those prior to the exit restrictions, the mobile data should have shown that the movement radius of citizens has shrunk by an average of 40-50%. to 50%. The measures in Austria are controversial and are strongly criticised by data protection lobbies in If we then turn to the Netherlands, in the Netherlands the Public Health Act is the basis for data processing in the event of a threat to public health. The coronavirus has been added to this via a new ministerial emergency regulation. As a result, GGD doctors can conduct investigations and IVM can conduct investigations. This does not provide a basis for monitoring based on location data. Aled Volsen of the Dutch Data Protection Authority has taken a clear position. We must continue to pay close attention to this. The corona crisis should not become an excuse for throwing away privacy completely. The crisis should not become the prelude to a big brother society. It would be a shame if we look back in a year and see that we've undone everything that we've built up in the field of privacy over decades of hard work. But there is an argument in the Netherlands that the right to privacy at this time of crisis is not absolute. In the nationwide Dutch daily newspaper De Volstrand, an argument was put forward by Peter Olsthorn that the privacy law is currently not that important and it's best to be put out of operation. Well, that's too bad for privacy, or should it be written on tombstones of the the dead? but she kept her privacy until the end. It's a strong argument. And, you know, each person didn't have their own view on that, I'm sure. But even Baz Filippini, the chairman of the Privacy Information, Privacy First, pleaded in a column for temporarily less privacy at the service of the general interest. He says, in explanation, to Devolstrant, I think many people voluntarily want to temporarily give up their privacy by installing an app that allows them to be tracked. So then moving on to Germany, for weeks has been a discussion in Germany about whether and how mobile data or user data from smartphones can, should, or should be used to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. German telecom provider Deutsche Telekom wishes to support the National Health Organisation the Robert Koch Institute, RKI, in containing coronavirus. For this purpose, the mobile operator has apparently already handed over part of its customer data to the federal authority in an anonymous form. And free of charge, RKI boss Lata Vila is working on a mobile tracking solution. The first data delivery consisted of a volume of 5GB. More deliveries followed soon after. The data will provide RKI researchers with new insights into the spread and better containment of covid 19 However, it would not be possible to track individual citizens or infected people, as has been done in Asian countries and in Israel. What Telecom calls signalling data is in fact information about two things. One, when a cell phone establishes a voice or data connection, and two, which cell phone mask the device used to dial in. The data should enable detailed analysis and models, but only to district community level. In order for the data of Telecom customers to be analysed at all, high GDPR requirements apply. For this reason... The smallest level of a data set always included from Deutsche Telekom is at least 30 users. It is not possible to draw conclusions about a single customer from the data. The process has been developed together with the Data Protection Authorities. Furthermore, earlier on, it had been assessed by the then Federal Data Protection Officer, Andrea Volkhoff, as compliant with data protection. RTI boss Lothar Viva said that the evaluation of personalised cell phone data by the RTI could represent an enormous improvement for the work of the health authorities, despite technical and legal issues. He said that we think it's a sensible concept. At the RTI, a team of 25 people from 12 different institutions are currently working on a solution on a voluntary basis. In a discussion about the acquisition of cell phone data via apps or data directly from the mobile network, experts had rather opted for a solution via an app rather at the beginning of the debate. The Federal Data Protection Commissioner also warned that deeper access to the cell phone data can only be justified with the consent of those affected. So that's the main countries that are working on it at the moment, but what are some other countries that are doing? Well, in Poland, Poland's has taken a different approach. Poland said that since the government has implemented a home quarantine application, quarantine citizens can download an app, it then asks them, irregularly, to send a photo of the environment, within 20 minutes. Automatic facial recognition determines whether it is indeed the person in quarantine in the photo. Participating in digital quarantine check is voluntary, but it does replace the other option, which is a control visit by a police officer. The Slovak government is going a step further. It's preparing a law that will allow the government to use phone location data to check whether corona patients remain in isolation. That said, Prime Minister Ida Makovic on Tuesday said those that are affected with the virus and people who travel to Slovakia from abroad would be subject to the new checking. Now, it's got to be said that in the fight against COVID-19, policy makers right across the EU are pushing the boundaries of GDPR. Also, in EU member states, emergency breaks law when millions of lives are at stake. So, in other words, though the standard is there, each country can override it if it feels necessary in its own country given the current situation we find ourselves with the worldwide pandemic. And so there really are two arguments on this. One says the data helps the wider population. The other says it means that we lose a lot of privacy. And we'd be interested to hear what you feel on that. So if you have a view one way or the other, please do email us at corona at dot co-u-k and uh, we'll try and bring all your points together in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In
1: our previous article, we spoke about how governments and across Europe are looking to use mobile phone data to track where people are going, how they're socialising, where they're moving to. So... What data can you reasonably expect uh, the government to collect about you during this corona crisis? Well, these are the sort of things that are allowed under GDPR. Government, the NHS and other organisations can make sure you get vital public health messages via phone, email or text. And indeed, most people with a mobile phone will have received a text from the government during the last few days about the coronavirus and about the implications now on everyone on staying indoors wherever possible. It's important to say that that's perfectly fine under GDPR that they've done that and they don't need your consent to do that because it falls under the vital interest clauses of GDPR. You might be asked to give details about sensitive health conditions and recent travel that you think to are excessive. It might be to your employer, for example. Employers and organisations do have an obligation to protect their staff So in some cases, it can be reasonable for them to ask you if you've visited a particular country or if you've experienced coronavirus symptoms. But they shouldn't be asking for more information than is necessary. And if you're concerned, then speak to the organisation, speak to your DPO, your Data Protection Officer, or if you don't have one, then speak to the ICO directly, the Information Commissioner's Office. If you become ill with coronavirus, your employer will need to tell your colleagues, but they shouldn't name you. And that's quite important. They can say that one of their team has fallen victim to coronavirus, but they shouldn't actually name the individual. And the other thing is if you yourself have made a Freedom of Information request or you've made a subject access request for your own information, then you should expect delays in response because organisations are diverting their resources to help with other challenges at the moment and the ICO has already indicated that whilst the 30 days, which is the normal target for providing information, remains a target, they are more minded to allow extensions to that target, bearing in mind that many organisations will be operating without their full complement of staff.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: As we mentioned last week, more and more organisations are now having their staff work from home during the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. And we thought it was worth recovering some of the items that we covered last week and adding to them a little bit. So the fact that people are working from home obviously gives you new cyber security challenges that must be managed. In addition, we know that cyber criminals are preying on the fears of the coronavirus and sending phishing emails that try and trick users into clicking on a link to a bad website, which might then download malware onto their computer or steal their passwords. So we put together this guidance, which recommends steps to take if your organisation is introducing or scaling up the amount of homeworking and provides some tips on how individuals can spot typical signs of phishing emails. So whilst working from home may not be new to many organisations and employees, the coronavirus is forcing organisations to consider home working on a greater scale and for many for a much longer period of time. You may have more people working from home than usual and some of them may not have done it before or some of them may have done it of course, just for a day or two a week and now suddenly it's the norm rather than going into the office every day. One thing that is important is making sure that your employees have good, strong passwords. So it's worth making sure that you instruct your staff to make sure their passwords are strong. And wherever possible, and if your applications support it, then we would recommend using two-factor authentication. Remember that for those people not used to working from home, then suddenly having to work from home can be a daunting prospect. There are also practical considerations. Staff who are used to share an office space will now be remote. Think about the new services that you may need to provide so they can continue to collaborate, such as chat rooms, video teleconferencing and document sharing. So you might look at applications such as Zoom or Skype for Business or Microsoft Groups as ways of working together. But some general points to bear in mind are that remote users may need to use different software or use their familiar applications but in a different way compared to what they do when they're in the office. So you might want to produce some small written guides of those features, and also, from your own home, test that things from home work as you expect them to. Another sad fact of staff working from home is that staff are more likely to have their devices damaged or stolen when they're away from the office. Make sure that the devices, wherever possible, are encrypting data, and protect the data if it's lost or stolen. It's also, of course, important to make sure that employees are backing up that data when they're holding the data locally. And very importantly, it's making sure that your staff know how to report any problems. This is especially important, of course, if they feel there may have been a data breach because whilst they're now working from home, they're not working from the office, you still have the requirement of reporting to the ICO within 72 hours if a serious data breach occurs. So it's important that they know who to contact and how and that they shouldn't feel afraid to contact those people if they feel that a data breach has happened. Many of us will be making use of virtual private networks, or VPNs, to allow remote users to securely access our main systems. VPNs create an encrypted network connection that authenticates the user and or device and encrypts the data in transit between the user and your services. If you're already using a VPN, make sure it's fully patched with the latest updates. You might need additional licenses or capacity or bandwidth, so make sure you have those in place. If you're setting one up for the first time, then we would strongly recommend that you get an outside company to set your VPN up for you so that you're sure that it's set up in the best way in the shortest possible time. The other thing you might want to think about is how users are going to transfer data between each other. We would strongly recommend that you make use of something like Dropbox to be able to do that rather than using usb keys because the danger with usb keys is a physically they can get lost and b it's very hard to control what happens to them when this whole episode is over and in weeks or months to come we're all back in our normal office environments it's very hard to be sure that all the data on those usb keys is where you think it is and that there aren't road usb keys still in circulation with data on them which could present you with a data breach at some point in the future. So try and discourage people from using USB keys to transfer data and encourage them to use a central service such as Dropbox. So what about these phishing attempts? Well, cyber criminals are preying on fears of the coronavirus and sending phishing emails that try and trick users into clicking a bad link. Once clicked, the user is sent to a dodgy website which could download malware onto their computer or could attempt to steal their passwords from their computer. The scams may claim to have a cure for the virus, offer a financial reward, or be encouraging you to donate. Like many phishing scams, these emails are preying on real-world concerns to try and trick people into doing the wrong thing. So it's worth issuing your staff with some guidance about phishing emails and discourage them from falling into the trap of clicking on them. But what should they do if they have already clicked? Well, the most important thing to do is not panic. There are a number of practical steps that can be taken. One is to make sure they have up-to-date antivirus and anti-malware software on their PCs or other devices. If the employee realises that they've been tricked into providing their password, then you should look to change their password on all of their accounts. And if your employee has donated money or has lost money, then they should report this as a crime to action fraud. And they can do that online. They can do that by visiting www.actionfraud.police.uk. That's www.actionfraud.police.uk. You're
0: listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Button.
1: In our previous article about remote working, we mentioned the possibility of using Zoom video conferencing and Whilst Zoom is an excellent product, it does have a couple of security concerns. And nonetheless, it's being used at the moment by the British government. The British government is using Zoom to conduct cabinet meetings despite reported Ministry of Defence warnings about the security implications. The government appears to be heeding its own COVID-19 advice in forcing ministers to adhere to social distancing and work from home rules. Even though we know that Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock have both actually now contracted coronavirus, but nonetheless, we've actually seen pictures of Boris Johnson using Zoom to host a cabinet meeting. The concern is that Zoom, which, although it's a US produced platform, has a large China based engineering team and has been banned by the MOD for certain uses on security concerns with staff of the department told to stop using it until further notice. A government spokesman said that according to guidance from the National Cyber Security Centre, there is no security reason presumed not to be used for conversations below a certain classification. However, others are not so sure. University of Bristol researcher Andrew Dwyer raised concerns about previous vulnerabilities uncovered in the platform, and of the firm's privacy policy. Should we be letting a company we know so little about be entering our highest office of state? Should we be divulging so much personal data to this company with lax policies, he tweeted. The rush online means we need to pay more attention and not less. Last July, researchers revealed a zero-day bug in the Mac Zoom client which could have allowed hackers to spy on users via their webcams. It took several months for Zoom to fix the bug, even though it was first reported to them back in March. And so we're not saying don't use Zoom, far from it. Indeed, we use Zoom ourselves for a number of uses. But just be aware that if you have particularly secure conversations you wish to hold, then Zoom may not be the best platform to use for those conversations.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Moving away from the coronavirus now for a moment, we come back to the data breach at Virgin Media, which we reported previously on the GDPR Weekly Show. And this week, Virgin have written out to all of their customers who've been affected the letters headed important update regarding your personal information. And it goes on to say, We are very sorry to have to inform you that we have recently become aware that some of your personal information stored on one of our databases has been accessed without permission. Our investigation is ongoing, but we currently understand that the database was accessible from at least the 19th of April 2019 and that the information has been recently accessed. To reassure you, the database did not include any of your passwords or financial details such as bank account number or credit card information. The database was used to manage information about our existing potential customers in relation to some of our marketing activities. This included contact details such as name, home and email address and phone numbers, technical and product information including any requests you may have made to us using forms on our website. In a very small number of cases it also included your of birth. Please note that this is all of the types of information in the database but not all of this information may, may be related to each individual. We take our responsibility to protect your personal information seriously. We know what happened, why it happened, and as soon as we became aware, we immediately shut down access to the database and launched a full independent forensic investigation. We have also informed the Information Commissioner's Office. Given the nature of the information involved, there is a risk you might be targeted for phishing attempts, fraud or nuisance marketing communication. We understand that you will be concerned, so we are writing to everybody affected to provide reassurance, guidance and support. We have put all the latest information on our website, at www.virginmedia.com forward slash help forward slash data hyphen incident including some advice on how to stay safe online such as advice from the information commissioners office on how you can avoid or report nuisance marketing tools, emails and text how to be vigilant by not providing your personal information to anyone suspicious online by phone, email or text if you want more information you can get it here https colon, slash, slash, www.decksafeonline.org forward slash protecting hyphen yourself forward slash spam hyphen and hyphen scam hyphen email slash How you can protect yourself from the risk of identity theft, which is when someone uses someone else's personal information to obtain goods, services or money without permission and other types of fraud. The Information Commissioner's Office has information online at https colon slash slash ico.org.uk forward slash your hyphen data hyphen matters forward slash identity hyphen theft. Although no financial banking details or account passwords are accessed, it is always a good idea to make sure that your passwords are strong and not easy to guess. There is some advice here on how to set a strong password. HTTPS colon slash www.virginmedia.com forward slash help forward slash how hyphen to hyphen create hyphen a hyphen strong hyphen password. If having read this letter and visited our website you still have questions you can contact Virgin on 0800 052 that's 0800 052 2621 but please be aware that their customer service advisors do not have any further information at this stage. And the letter is from Luke Slurler, the CEO of Virgin Media and he said that once again we sincerely apologise for what has happened. Of course what the letter doesn't mention is whether they will be offering any compensation to their customers for the data that has been breached. And this has already been seized on by some lawyers. And Aman Johel, director at Your Lawyers, which is the legal firm supporting those affected in taking action, said, Virgin Media failed to take the steps required to keep customer data safe. It is vital for the company to understand the severity of this breach. When data is left exposed online, it is open season for forces to scam and attack vulnerable people. Your lawyers have formally notified Virgin Media that we are taking action and our payment base is growing daily. We urge anyone affected by the breach to make a claim as soon as possible. Joe Hale added, This is a serious breach of consumer rights and it is time companies like Virgin Media abide by the law and implement stricter cyber security measures to protect its customers from future data breaches. There's simply no excuse now given the volume of preceding breaches and this was an avoidable event. Even though the breach occurred due to human error, we must hold Virgin Media to account. And of course, it's entirely possible and indeed I think likely that Virgin Media will also face financial penalties from the ICO for this data breach given the volume of people affected by the breach. If you wish to make a claim via your lawyers and of course you can also make a claim directly or well, no doubt via other legal representatives, but your lawyers are trying to form a transaction on this, then you can find out more details at yourlawyers.co.uk, that's Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-Y-E-R-S.co.uk, or you can call them free on 0800 634 7575. We should stress at this point that insurancy and the GDPR Weekly Show have no connection, financial or otherwise, with Consumer Action Lawyers or yourlawyers.co.uk. It is, of likely in this case, because it's such a large data breach, that there will be further updates to come, and we will bring them to you as soon as we possibly can in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Watford Community Housing accidentally sent out an email this week containing contact and personal details, including their ethnicity and sexual orientation, about a significant proportion of its customers. The email, which was sent on Monday this week, was aimed at providing guidance on how to communicate and receive information from the housing Association during the coronavirus outbreak. However, it contained personal information about a significant proportion of Watford Community Housing's residents, including their contact details, date of birth, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. The Housing Association said the email contained no financial information about the customers. In an email to customers, WCH said it had responded quickly to the incident, communicating on social media, and emailing those affected, advised them to delete the information immediately, as well as apologising. Watford Community Housing said it was investigating the incident fully, and liaising with the Information Commissioner's Office and the regulator for social housing as necessary and working directly with those affected to keep any adverse impact to a minimum. The Housing Association said it had been closely monitoring the situation and will keep customers up to date with developments and the next steps. So that's all we know on this data breach at the moment but if we have any update on this data breach either from Watford Community Housing or from the ICO we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: The Daily Telegraph newspaper had something of a scoop this week when it reported that BBC databases were being regularly breached by hackers and that information including the sex life of some members of the public had been revealed. The Telegraph said that the broadcaster had suffered 38 breaches Since 2018, with an average of at least one reported incident a month. Information held about members of the public including data concerning their sex lives or their children had been accessed through BBC records, the newspaper said. For its part, the BBC said it knew that it was not immune to crime, which had led to the release of sensitive personal information. We've asked the BBC for a statement on this and when we receive that, we will bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: The Irish Teaching Council suffered a data breach this week. The Irish Teaching Council, which is the professional standards body that holds personal details of 104,000 registered teachers in the Republic of Ireland, said it suffered from a data breach. The council said it had alerted the 9,735 teachers affected, and said it was not likely to result in any real risk to them in circumstances where only limited personal data had been disclosed. The data inadvertently shared included the person's name, address, PPS number, teaching council registration number, the month they joined the register and their renewal date. Certain information relating to the vetting procedure, including the clearance data, status and reference, was also breached. However, no financial data or criminal conviction data was included in the information disclosed nor were any email addresses. In an email to affected teachers yesterday, the council said it had recently become aware of the incident. According to the council, a phishing email was sent to a small number of teaching council staff, which caused the script to be activated that established an auto-forwarding rule for all subsequent emails being sent to the staff members concerned. This meant that emails received from those staff members were automatically forwarded to an external Gmail account for a short period of time. Included as an attachment to one of the emails that was forwarded was a spreadsheet containing the registration details of a number of registered teachers. The Irish Teaching Council said it had notified the Data Protection Commissioner, the DPC, and following its own investigation into the matter, had provided updates to the DPC. Although a teacher's email address was not disclosed, the council had advised those affected by the breach to remain vigilant should they receive any suspicious emails or written requests from unknown third parties. The Council also apologised for any inconvenience caused by the incident and is encouraging members with concerns to contact the Council's Data Protection Officer. In a statement, the Teaching Council said the breach was detected as part of existing security procedures in place across its IT systems and detailed and complete analysis had taken place of any emails which may have potentially been accessed and their contents. In total, 323 emails were found to have been forwarded. It said the circulation of the attachments of the type involved was not normal practice and steps have been taken to ensure that it doesn't happen again. A spokesman said this was a strictly isolated incident and the wider systems or databases of the teaching council have not been affected in any manner. The council has engaged IT consultants to investigate the matter thoroughly. They have confirmed that there have been no further unauthorised access attempts since the occurrence was detected. So again, if we receive any update on this in future weeks from either the Irish Teaching Council or the... Data Protection Commissioner we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden
1: So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show I hope you found it useful I hope you found it entertaining please do let me know let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurety.co.uk you can find out more about us and Insurety at www.insurity.co.uk, and I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week everybody and remember to keep your data safe.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden.
1: The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurety.